smoke and mirrors. Smoke and mirrors. Have you ever heard that expression before? It's just another way of saying not everything that appears to be true or real is actually true or real. It's an illusion. It's a sleight of hand. It's a clever trick. I don't know if you know this, but here's one interesting historical fact. Smoke and mirrors was first a classic technique in magical illusions that made an entity like a spirit or a ghost appear suddenly in an empty space, like in a theater at a magic show. It was documented as early as 1770 and spread widely after its use by a German magician. However, in the end, it was nothing but a sham. The illusion relied on a hidden projector in the theater, known then as a magic lantern, the beam of which reflects off a mirror into a cloud of smoke, which in turn scatters the beam to create an image, an image that only appeared to be a spirit or ghost. But it was nothing of the sorts. When the magic trick was eventually found out, it was just smoke and mirrors. No spirit, no ghost. However, since around the 1970s, so about 50 years ago or so, the phrase smoke and mirrors has entered common English use to refer to any proposal that, when examined closely, proves to be an illusion. Smoke and mirrors is now a catchphrase we might use from time to time that refers to the obscuring or the embellishing of the truth of really any given situation with misleading or irrelevant information. For example, it could be scenarios when a politician or government official tries to cover up immoral scandals and financially fraudulent practices from the public eye. In order to remain in office or be elected to an office, they might give statistics about numbers that are embellished in some way or give reports on activities that really have nothing to do with the main issue at hand. Add some zeros here, don't report certain expenditures over there, and all will appear well. They might even pay hush money to people who actually know what is really going on behind the scenes in order to carry out their agenda and not be caught. But smoke and mirrors isn't just a technique that can be found in the White House or in Congress or in a state governor or town mayor's election race. It can also be found in your local school board or in your neighborhood homeowners association. It could even be found in your own local church. It could even have occurred this past week on Thanksgiving Day, maybe with those strained relationships with family members that you ate that meal with. After all, why press in on personal matters with real and honest spiritual depth where you can just keep things superficial and peaceful. Why address the elephant in the room when you can just pretend the elephant doesn't exist? But friends, the same can be true for any one of us, can it? We, like cunning magicians, can perform this same type of social and spiritual illusion before others too. We can play a smoke and mirrors kind of trick on one another. And I'm not talking about strangers, I'm talking about members of the same church members of the same family. Friends, if we're not humbling ourselves daily before the Lord, and if we're not learning how to cultivate humble and honest and transparent relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and actually admitting we're not doing well spiritually, our walks with the Lord are not good. Friends, membership at CCBC will become a sham. It will become smoke and mirrors. You see, friends, all of us, every single one of us, elder to member to deacon alike, every single one of us can appear to others in this room as a certain type of person with character strengths and spiritual fruit in our lives. But the real question is this, if others were to appear into our lives on a deeper level, where there are no more censors, there are no more edits, there are no more masks to hide behind. Friend, what would they find? Would they find a life that truly wants to walk 
in the fellowship of God's favor and light? Would they find a life that truly wants to walk in the truth of God's word and repent when convicted of disobeying that word? Would they find a life that truly, genuinely wants to be honest and transparent with sin struggles and moments of hypocrisy? Or would others who peer into our life find something different? Would others find a person that tries their best to hide the bad and ugly about them and instead promote one's spirituality and godliness with smoke and mirrors, an illusion of godliness. To all of us here who profess to know the Lord, it's good for us to be challenged afresh, isn't it? If Jesus were to turn on the lights in our individual lives, in our families, in our churches, in our closest friendships, would Jesus find authentic faith in him? Or would he find a counterfeit, a sham? Who among us, even this morning, might be living a smoke and mirrors Christianity that is really no Christianity at all? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, specifically, we'll be looking at Mark 11, verses 12 to 33 this morning. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 494. And if you don't have a Bible at home that you can read, you can take that Bible and the chair back as a gift from our church to you. Mark 11. Last week, we left off in Mark 11, verses 1 to 11 with Jesus' short-lived triumphal entry into Jerusalem, with his disciples doing exactly what he commanded them to do, and with his humble entry by riding in on a young donkey, the crowds were ecstatic. Uh, They were enthralled. They were full of adoration and praise as their eyes beheld their promised king, the one they believed who had come to deliver them from their earthly oppressors and enemies, and to establish his kingdom on earth immediately and forever. However, their excitement didn't last very long, did it? As you see there in last week's sermon, it is the last time a mass following will ever be thumbs up for Jesus on this side of the cross. But Jesus didn't appear to be phased by this short-lived brief parade put on for him. It's as if Jesus had a job to do, a task to complete, a mission to fulfill, a house to cleanse. And that's where we pick up today. We find ourselves watching Jesus with his disciples walking with him, walking back towards Jerusalem after they had stayed the night in Bethany just a few miles away. Please follow with me. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, 
be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is God's word. To help us understand this next section really in just one sentence, here's how we can summarize it. Jesus teaches what having true faith in God looks like and what having fake faith in God looks like. Jesus teaches what having true faith in God looks like and what having fake faith in God looks like. And as a result of our time this morning, we should, if we're listening carefully, be able to have a better understanding of what true faith in God is and examine our faith in God this morning to see whether it's true or fake. You'll see there starting in verse 12, Jesus as the God-man shows his true humanity. Though Jesus was and is the divine, eternal Son of God, he truly became a real man in his incarnation. Look at me starting in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, speaking of Jesus, was hungry. Friends, as much as we want to celebrate and adore and exalt the deity of Jesus, uh, we cannot commit heretical errors that others have done throughout church history and deny or suppress that he was also a real and true and full man. Friends, Jesus got hungry for physical food and thirsty for water, just like we do. Just like you experienced this past week at Thanksgiving on Thursday. Jesus, his tummy would have grumbled too when he thought about something that he was excited about eating. And just using my sanctified imagination for the moment, I would imagine when even Jesus was a little boy, he got hangry from time to time. Yet even when he was hangry, he never sinned. So anyways, moving on. Uh, throughout the scriptures, Jesus' humanity is put on display again and again. In John 4, verse 6, we're told that Jesus got tired and weary. And we know that he needed sleep and rest, just like we do. Remember the story about Jesus and the boat with the disciples? Uh, they're panicking that their life's about to end, and what, what is Jesus doing? He's taking a cat nap, just taking a snooze in Mark 4, 38. Uh, we're told in Matthew 4, verse 2, when Jesus was in the Judean wilderness for 40 days, fasting, and being tempted by the devil, the scriptures tell us he became hungry. And on this momentous occasion in Mark's gospel, he used a normal, everyday human experience, like hunger, and the desire to eat, to teach his disciples a profound and jaw-dropping spiritual lesson. Look with me at verse 13. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Uh, fig trees around Jerusalem normally begin to leaf in March or April, producing more mature fruit a few months later in the summer when all the leaves are out. Uh, this tree that Jesus has already seen is full-leafed already, which aroused the expectation in Jesus of seeing early figs already growing on it. In other words, the foliage, the, the greenery of the leaves gave off the appearance to his eye 
that a delicious buffet of figs were just a few seconds away from him. In other words, the tree gave off the impression to have signs of fruit he could delight in and eat. But when Jesus got closer to the tree, he examined the tree with a closer inspection. The tree was barren. It didn't have any fruit on it. Friends, this might be similar today with the big sale that you look at on the internet. You see it advertised that your favorite store is having this massive sale on the very items you hope to purchase for Christmas this year. But when you arrived in person at the store, the store was actually closed. And we mean like bolted the whole deal, not just closed for Monday, but closed indefinitely. You are disappointed. You're shocked, right? You've looked on the internet, you've looked on the roadside, and you see signs everywhere saying this wonderful sale for something you are looking forward to is at your store starting at X, Y, and Z day. But when you pull up in the parking lot, you look through the glass doors, and you realize that the company must have bellied up and gone bankrupt. There's not even one soul anywhere in sight at the store. Friends, you could imagine if that was you after planning and frugally thinking through how you're going to get the best bang for your bargain or bargain for your bang or however that goes. Well, you're left frustrated. False advertisement is frustrating. Well, Jesus sees the same reality with this fig tree. This fig tree gave off a false advertisement of having real delicious fruit that would accompany those early leaves. But it didn't deliver. Jesus was hungry for something delightful to eat. He was hopeful for the leaves that he saw, but it left Jesus disappointed. In fact, it left Jesus firm and resolved about how to think of that tree. And Jesus used this moment as a teaching moment for his disciples about a spiritual lesson through this enacted parable. So what does Jesus do next? Look at verse 14. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. What is Jesus doing here? Just imagine walking alongside Jesus. You just had this amazing parade into Jerusalem, and now your Lord and Master is talking to a tree. And he seems angry talking to the tree. I mean, has Jesus lost his mind? Is Jesus losing his cool? Is Jesus damaging someone else's property? Like we might be tempted to do when you're angry. Was Jesus letting his Hunger, get the best of him, like Esau did in the Old Testament when he sold his birthright for some bread and a bowl of soup. In this next section, we'll see Mark unfold for us why Jesus did what he did. So if you're taking notes, I have three main points that will serve as an outline for the rest of the sermon. Point number one. Point number one is longer than the last two points, so put on your seatbelt there and breathe. Point number one, Jesus exposes... The hypocrisy and deception among false worshipers in the house of God. Jesus exposes the hypocrisy and deception among false worshipers in the house of God. That's verses 12 to 21. Point number two, Jesus explains the significance of faith and forgiveness that characterizes the true people of God. Jesus explains the significance of faith and forgiveness that characterizes the true people of God. That's verses 22 to 25. And then point number three, Jesus elevates himself as one who has greater authority than the teachers and leaders in the temple. Jesus elevates himself as one who has greater authority than the teachers and leaders in the temple. That's verses 27 to 33. Let's look at that first point together. Jesus exposes the hypocrisy and deception amongst false worshipers in the household of God. Look at me starting in verse 15. 
And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. Uh, In Jesus' day, the Herodian temple was a huge complex that was divided into four main parts. You want to jot these down? You can actually look these up on a map later to see these broken out. Uh, First, there was the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles. We joke in our elders' meetings, if you're an elder at the inner court, you're looking at your pastoral assistants or guests on the outside, and we always say there's, a, there's the Gentile court over there as they're observing the elders' meeting. Anyway, totally nerdy joke. Jansen Grant gets it, and maybe the elders. Anyway, the court of the Gentiles. This space in the temple, really court, if you will, was carved out for non-Jews, foreigners of the nation of Israel who came to the annual Passover to worship at the temple. Second, there was the court of the women the court of the women, specifically a space carved out for Jewish women to congregate. Men and women were separated. Even in Orthodox Jewish synagogues today, you still find that. Thirdly, you see the court of the Jews, or specifically the Jewish men. And then you see, fourthly, there was the Holy of Holies. That was that space that was secluded and divided, kind of really a cube only one man could enter into, the high priest who was ordained of God to appear before the Lord. And he would offer up the sacrifices on behalf of the people on the day of atonement. Uh, This was a special place that no one else was allowed to go, but the one that was divinely ordained of God to do that on behalf of the people. Uh, The court of the Gentiles was the outer edges of the temple complex. So this is a pretty huge area. It was an open-air courtyard measuring some 500 yards long, 325 yards wide, approximately 35 acres. In the area enclosed by the massive perimeter of porticos were where merchants would sell sheep and doves for sacrifices and exchange foreign currency into Tyrian shekel, which was the closest available currency to the Hebrew shekel commanded of the Jews in Exodus 30. The temple precincts were overseen by these men called the Sadducees. We're going to learn more about them in Mark chapter 12. And the immense volume of trade and exchange in the court of the Gentiles was crucial. Listen, not only for the maintenance of the temple, like paying the bills and keeping the sacrifices going, but the exchange, the commercial trade, the money that was being brought in was also for the financial gain of the Sadducees and the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin. And based off of records penned by the Jewish historian Josephus, about 30 years after Jesus' life in AD 66, when the temple was completed, 255,600 lambs were sacrificed that year for the Passover. That's a lot of meh. I don't, I don't live on a farm. It's my best shot. But that's a lot of animals. You got a ton of animals being purchased for sacrifices, which meant a ton of people were coming to Jerusalem to worship, which also meant a ton of money was being exchanged. A ton of money just happened to slide into some pockets of a few chosen evil men. Acting on their disregard for the Gentiles, the Sadducees and the Jewish leadership, they basically turned the court of the Gentiles, that massive 35-acre courtyard, as a stockyard for commercial purposes. The sale of the animals for sacrifice had become one of the most lucrative businesses for the Sanhedrin. As Jews and Gentiles came pouring into the city, both poor and middle class and upper class Jews would come to exchange the currency. Friends, the sales conveniently went up. 
the price for the average sheep went up. And the beneficiaries of such premiums got more wealthy as a result. So what did Jesus do when he witnessed this financial exploitation by the leadership in the temple? What did Jesus do when the place of worship, of all places, became a place where worldliness and wickedness were carried on? What did Jesus do when the temple, the central place where heaven and earth met, if you will, had become a secret refuge for Israel's religious hypocrites. Well, friends, the passage is really clear. Jesus began to clean house. He was righteously angry. And that's because Jesus was zealous for his Father's name and his Father's glory. Unlike these wolves in sheep's clothing, Jesus deeply cared about how worship was carried on. He was grieved when he saw the worship of God contaminated and corrupted and treated flippantly in his father's house. So like a faithful high priest should have done to address the issue and get rid of these evil men, Jesus, the great high priest, he takes over and he begins to clean his father's house. Friends, God in the flesh came to his temple in the person of his son to bring true, lasting revival and reformation in the house of God. Friends, that's why you got to be very careful if you start praying for revival. Be very careful. Some of you know exactly where I'm going with that. You've prayed for revival. You ask the Lord to bring his power from on high to send the laborers to the harvest that he sovereignly wants to use to see his church made alive. Friends, be careful of praying for revival because sometimes you don't know what you're praying for. When Jesus showed up at the temple, revival was beginning, but it was loud. It was costly. Jesus is overturning tables. Jesus is driving out people. Friends, what do you think Jesus does when he brings revival to his church? Friends, Jesus doesn't play. He doesn't play religion. He doesn't treat the worship of God flippantly or lightly or like a cherry on top of your ice cream. This is a matter of eternal life or eternal damnation. And friends, Jesus, he confronted this kind of hypocrisy throughout his ministry. You remember in Mark chapter 7 where Jesus has to expose these Pharisees who were adding things to God's word and diminishing actually what it said? You know what Jesus basically said to the Pharisees? And really, by his actions, he's doing it again. He says, your worship is lip service. Your worship is just a bunch of noise. Your worship is empty and dead religion. It's just going through the motions like the priest in Malachi's day that Tom read earlier. It's just a bunch of busyness filling up your ministry calendar. It's just checking off a box. It's just scoring points politically with your comrades and cronies to look good in the community. Friends, That's why Jesus basically summarized the Jewish leadership in this way. Your worship is man-centered, money-driven, and manipulative pragmatism. Jesus said in Mark 7, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. What Jesus said of these crooks earlier in his ministry was still true at the very end of his ministry. Jesus looked at what was going on and he called a spade a spade. 
He, with his heavenly gaze, looked through the stained glass windows, if you will, and he saw the veneer and vanity fair that the spiritual leaders were treating God's money in God's house and deceiving God's people with. You see, it wasn't the money changers or those who sold pigeons that were the main problem in the situation. Friends, they had to have those tables. They had to have currency exchange. There had to be those things set up in the temple. The issue was not currency exchange. The issue was not purchasing animals. So what got Jesus so hot? What got the Son of God literally to flex his own human muscles and drive people out physically from being in his Father's house? Why did Jesus not simply just rearrange the furniture in the temple? You know, just get a new priest. Like a church might say, well, we'll just get a new pastor. Why did he instead literally run them off and cut off any more activity going on in and around the temple? Well, verse 17 tells us why. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Friends, anytime Jesus is wanting to get our attention, He takes the word of God by the spirit of God and exposes the hypocrisy in our hearts. And like a faithful pastor should be doing every week for his church, Jesus here brings God's word to bear on the people's hearts to expose the darkness going on. And by doing so, he reveals what was actually being neglected, what was being abused, what was being disobeyed by these so-called leaders. Jesus here quotes from two passages, or he alludes to the second one. The first one is Isaiah 56, verse 7, and then Jeremiah 7, verse 11. Isaiah 56, verse 7, and Jeremiah 7, verse 11. Now, what is Isaiah 56 all about? Well, you can read more extensively in your own time. Here's just a summary. In Isaiah 56, God speaks of his salvation being extended to those who were formerly excluded from it those who were foreigners, those who were eunuchs, those who were exiles, those who were Gentiles. In other words, when Jesus shows up in the temple, the house of prayer, he's showing up because Israel had largely failed to do what God commissioned them to do. They were to be a light to the nations. They were to see the Gentiles brought near to God. But they failed. And Jesus said, enough. I will fulfill. I will be the hope of the nations. I am the light of the world. Jesus shows up and he fulfills the prophecy from Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40. As we read many, many months ago in Mark chapter 1. How did this very gospel begin? Mark 1, verses 1 to 3, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That's Malachi 3, 1. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, that's John the Baptist, prepare the way of the Lord. Kurios, make his path straight. Who is the Lord? It's Yahweh who's come to earth In human flesh, God has showed up in his own house and he's about to bring true and lasting revival to the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And friends, the fact that these men hated Jesus and rejected Jesus, listen, means they were rejecting God. Do you understand the severity You cannot say you love God if you do not honor the Son. If you reject the Son, you reject the Father. They're one. Jesus is the only way any sinner will ever be reconciled to this holy God. There are no substitutes. There are no backup plans. He is God's plan A. Israel bombed it. Adam bombed it. Judges, kings, 
bondage. Jesus shows up, drives out all the hocus pocus and hollow spirituality going on in the temple. And he says, a new day has dawned. I am reconciling Jew and Gentile as one people and making them my church. Friends, that is the good news of the gospel, that it's not for one ethnic group, i.e. the Jews or Americans or otherwise. It's the good news. It's the hope of the ends of the earth. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth for the nations. Friends, that's what Alan read earlier in Ephesians 2, right? Christ came and preached peace to those who were near, the Jews, and to those who were far off. Friends, we're the far off. We're the ends of the earth. If you're a Christian here today, you have reason to thank God that Jesus came into that temple 2,000 years ago because your name was written on his hands. And he came not to just play religion. No, he came to clean house, his father's house, and make us his temple. But friends, even worse than that, there was this divide. Gentiles, you're in the outer court. You're in the back alley. Get out there where all the sheep are being sold. That's where the Gentiles hang out during the temple sacrifices. Jesus says, no, there's no more barrier. This has always been God's plan. But Jesus sees something else going on. And he alludes to a prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, it is one of the prophetic words that God speaks through Jeremiah about his wayward people that are about to be exiled into judgment by the Babylonians. In Jeremiah 7, verse 11, this is what God said to his wayward people. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. The fact the Lord was calling his own covenant people a den of robbers means that God was saying, you're not repenting. I'm going to give you over to your sin. I'm going to lead you into a destruction awaiting you by the Babylonians. You're nothing but a den of robbers. Friends, Jesus alludes to that text, prophesied hundreds of years previously, and puts the indictment on the Jewish leaders standing five feet in front of him. Friends, this is where, in the temple, the most egregious, the most ungodly, the most unloving, and the most unbiblical practices were going on behind closed doors. Instead of these priests proclaiming the unadulterated, clear word of God that gives life to people, instead of the priests being examples, like elders are called, for the church to lead the people in holiness, friends, listen, these men were hiding in their sin, and they used the temple as their hideout. Friends, the entire sacrificial system at the temple had become one gigantic sham, an illusion of worship. It was just smoke and mirrors. Beloved, like the temple, churches are too full of sinners. But churches should never become a gigantic sham. They should never become an illusion of real worship. The last thing, members of CCBC, we ever want to be known in, and this church is a place of smoke and mirrors. Oh, God, have mercy on us. May we never fall prey to playing church trifling with the worship of God, smoke and mirrors kind of Christianity that is no Christianity at all. You see, friends, churches are full of sinners. Yes, amen, hallelujah. But churches should never be a place where we are safe in hiding our sin. That'll either preach or get you fired. I'm going to say this again. Churches are a place for sinners, for sinners to confess their sin, for sinners to ask for help with their sin. Yes, amen, hallelujah. 
But churches should never be a safe place to hide in your sin so as to remove all accountability of your sin against God. Oh, beloved, hear this as a stern warning to us. I would enact the parable by throwing the pulpit like Jesus with the table, but then I would lose the technology and Jackson would get on me. Stay away from churches who were known as churches where hypocrites go to hide. Stay away from churches that are known as churches where hypocrites go to hide, not get help. Churches that become a den of robbers is not a spiritually safe place for real Christians to worship. You know why Jesus was violent in that day? Because it's dangerous. Real sheep bought with the blood of Jesus being taken advantage of, lied to, and deceived by duplicitous, demonic hypocrites. It is evil in God's house. Friends, we should desire the total opposite in a church. We should not want a sham or a show, or some kind of smoke and mirrors production. Friends, we want the total opposite. Paul Washer, who was a missions agency director, itinerant preacher and author, once gave strong advice to believers on the type of church you should be looking to join and stay committed to. Notice what he said. Quote, I commit myself and my family to a faithful church because it practices church discipline. And because I need to be under church discipline. I need the watchful care of elders and other members who take this seriously. If my children make a profession of faith and go awry, I want to know that they will be brought before the church, if necessary, for the salvation of their souls. Some of you would get so angry if a pastor walked up to you and said, Brother, honestly, I've been praying about your child and I fear that he is unconverted. You would get so mad, you would rally a group to have that pastor kicked out. Perhaps you should instead be saying, praise God, we have got a man of God here. Friends, that's why the smoke and mirrors approach shows up all the time in churches. Church members drifting from the Lord, no longer attending the Lord's Day gatherings, prioritizing the weekly fellowship of believers. They say things like, I'm busy, when in reality, busyness is smoke. It's mirrors. It's spiritual unhealth, and maybe it could be revealing a lack of love for Christ altogether. Do you remember the seed that fell amongst the soil in March 4, the parable of the sower? The seed that fell amongst the thorns. What was the seed that Jesus talked about? He said the seed, the word of God that falls amongst the thorny soil are those because of the cares of this life the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word. Friends, I know you get sick, vacation, busyness, things happen. My goodness, you can't control tons of things that happen in your life. Friends, if you have a member in this church, they always just seem to be too busy for the Lord's Day. They're just too busy to meet up for Bible study. They're just too busy to talk about those difficulties they were talking about a year and a half ago. Friends, don't be duped by smoke and mirrors. The Lord can see right through it. We should too. We should love people. We should bear with patience with one another. We should know there are seasons of suffering that happen in the life of a church or a Christian. Friends, don't just write it off. When people drift, it usually happens little by little. And smoke and mirrors is an approach to protect them from being found out. Greg, as an elder now, you will get to know our church on a much deeper level with much more joys and see some challenges that some of our members are in. Lord, I'm praying for you, and I know you've been praying for us. We're glad you're going to shepherd with us. Friends, churches can do this all the time. They can hide behind their budget, their parking lot, their history, 
Just name whatever smoke and mirrors approach you want. But according to Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus walks amongst his churches. He knows his churches very well. He knows if they're playing games. He knows if it's a sham. He knows if it's smoke and mirrors. And friends, we know from Revelation, if, a, if the Spirit of God comes and convicts us, speaks to us, and we resist it, we reject it, Jesus will do to churches what he did to the temple. He'll turn out the lights. And I don't mean the electricity. I mean, there's no more power of God there. It's dead. And it's so dead, it may never be made alive again. That's why in verses 20 to 21, the tree withered away because Jesus cursed its very existence from bearing fruit ever again. Members of CCBC, pray that we continue to cultivate honesty and humility with one another. Pray that we would be very quick to confess our hypocrisy and not use the church to hide in our sin, but to get help with our sin. Number two, Jesus then positively teaches what true faith is. Look at verses 22 to 25. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whatever you stand, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. In verses 22 to 23, Jesus clarifies for his disciples what the Jewish leadership had clouded and confused in so many people's minds. The elders, the priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, so forth and so on. Friends, their faith was in their status. Their faith was in their titles. Their faith was in their money. Their faith was in their outward performance for God. But Jesus here doesn't say, have faith in those things. He says what in verse 22? Have faith in who? God. Trust him. Rely upon him. Have your minds and your hearts on his character, on his promises, on his good works, and show your faith in him by confidently going to him in prayer. In verse 23, Jesus uses now hyperbolic language, which is just exaggerated speech to bring home a point to his disciples. And Jesus here is not saying if you have enough faith, you can pick up the Temple Mount, the Ozarks, or the Rockies and throw it into the ocean. No, that's not what he's doing. It's a massive image that he's using to drive home a point. Mountains are massive. Human beings can't pick up a mountain. Jesus is saying to show the human impossibility of a task that nothing is impossible for God. And we show our trust in the God who can do the impossible through how we pray and what we pray. That's why in verse 23, he emphasizes, don't doubt. Don't go to God with a prayer request and at the same time, doubt him. That's hypocritical. You either trust him, I either trust him, or we don't. And what is the promise if we obey that command? Look at verse 24. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. What does that verse mean? Does this mean that now God is my personal genie, and if I rub him the right way, I get literally whatever I want? Well, here's an important rule in interpreting Scripture. You must always interpret Scripture with Scripture, and you need to interpret a text in light of its context. Context, context, context is king. So is Jesus saying that God will give me whatever I want if I just believe he will? You know, speak it into existence. Name it and claim it. I believe the answer is no for three reasons. Number one, Jesus already taught his disciples in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, God will never answer a prayer that would not contribute to his will being done. So if we pray for a sinful thing, 
or we pray for something in a sinful way with sinful motives, the Lord is not bound to grant us that request. You can read James 4, verses 1 to 4, to think more about that. Secondly, the context surrounding this verse is about the faithlessness of the Jewish leadership. In fact, their faithlessness, their unbelief was so dark that they had turned the house of prayer, the temple, into their hideout for financial profit and hypocrisy. Friends, prayer and offering to worship to God should be the main concern for God's people when we gather. Friends, churches that do not pray together don't stay together. Prayerless churches are dying churches. We want to see the hand of God in our lives, in our churches, in our community. We must pray. And we must pray in faith. Which leads to that third point. Jesus also cares about our relationships. In verse 25, the next verse, Jesus draws a connection between our prayers, listen, and our willingness to forgive those who have sinned against us. Look at verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Friends, in other words, God will not tolerate hypocrisy in our prayer life. Don't go to the throne of grace if you don't show grace to others. Don't ask God for mercy every single day in second, third, and fourth chances when you don't give it to anyone else. Friends, the Lord will not be mocked before you come to the Lord's Supper every month. That's why the elders always lead us to examine our relationships with the Lord and with one another. The Lord's Supper should not be the most divided hour of the month. It should be the most unifying and peaceful. Because God has given us peace by his spirit as one people. So how can God expect to answer prayers that we offer up if our hearts are full of bitterness, full of resentment from people we haven't forgiven? You see, what Jesus is affirming in these words is that if we have experienced God's forgiveness through Jesus, we are fundamentally transformed into forgiving people. Those who grasp how great a debt God has paid for our sins through Jesus Christ, friends, will enable us to forgive others of their sins against us. Friends, I also know from experience that reconciliation and full restoration of a strained relationship may not always be possible on this side of heaven. If others don't acknowledge their wrong or ever show signs of repentance, a transaction of relational forgiveness where we're fully restored can't happen. We can't go back to the way things were or we can't move forward until you acknowledge your egregious sin. But from the heart, all Christians are called to forgive others because God in Christ has forgiven us. And that counts for friends and that counts for foes. That's why you don't need self-talk and positive thinking to help you forgive people you're angry with. You need the grace of God to shower over your heart again. Oh, as the late R.C. Sproul once said, every time I sin, I have asserted my will over the will of my creator. I have declared that I am sovereign, not the Lord God. I've worked against his kingdom, not for it. I've sinned. I've sinned against a holy and infinitely righteous being who owes me nothing. If I were to wake up in hell, I will realize I will have only received what my life has merited. Not cruelty, not injustice, but perfect justice. Friends, the remedy for bitterness is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The remedy for hatred in hard hearts towards strained relationships with people who won't repent and who won't reconcile is always the same fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Listen, we are more vile than the thieves that hung on the cross with Jesus. If you say, I can't forgive them, then should God forgive you? 
Friends, that is, that is the costliness. If we're going to go to God in prayer, the Lord says, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them. And if not, your heavenly Father won't forgive you. To my non-Christian friend, do you know of this forgiveness today? Do you know the freedom that comes with knowing that your sin debt is paid in full? Today you can. Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus who came into the temple not to simply clean up a physical structure, but to clean hypocrites like us from the inside out. Friends, we're all hypocrites. We are soaking wet in hypocrisy. We're like fish in water. We don't know we're wet. But in, in the light of God's holiness, we are. Friend, don't try to hide your sin anymore. God already knows. Come to Jesus. He died on the cross for your sins as a ransom. And he rose from the dead, showing he is the son of God who has come to cleanse us from the inside out and make us new. Make us one of God's children into his kingdom. Beloved, the dividing line between having true faith in God versus a fake faith in God, listen, according to Jesus, is revealed by our prayer life and our willingness to forgive others of their sins against us. Did you hear that? If you don't want to play fake church stuff, smoke and mirrors anymore, you're just kind of done with it, you're exhausted with it, this is where you divide the line, not between the men and the boys, the women and the girls, between a Christian and a non-Christian. True faith and fake faith. Do you believe God at his word through prayer? And are you willing to trust God with the grace he's shown you to forgive others who have deeply sinned against you. Friends, that is the line. These Pharisees, these Sadducees, that didn't mark them. Which leads to point number three and our last point. Jesus elevates himself as one who has greater authority than the teachers and leaders in the temple. Look with me at verses 27 to 33 as we close. And they came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes, the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In this next section, you can just summarize it in one sentence. To acknowledge that John's baptism was God-ordained would be to confess Jesus was the Christ. To acknowledge that John's baptism, the man that was beheaded, who came to prepare the way, the voice crying in the wilderness for Yahweh, for Kurios, for the Lord Jesus, if you believe that he was a heaven-sent man that had a weird diet and weird clothing apparel, but you believed he was a prophet from God, it was to admit, it was to confess, Jesus really is the Christ. But what did these cowards and con artists do? They challenged Jesus with smoke and mirrors questions. Smoke and mirrors about authority. And Jesus saw right through it. Jesus countered them with a question. Friends, learn from Jesus here. If people are putting you up to a suspicious plot with questions, ask a question to their question, and you'll see where their motives really are. And what was their motives? They were looking for a loophole. They wanted to find some way to either deny Jesus' authority or have him killed as a blasphemer. The problem was, they were afraid. These men who thought of themselves as mighty and powerful and well-to-do, they were cowards inside. Did you know some of the loudest, proudest people are the most deeply insecure people? If you've got to tell people how great you are, you might be saying something very different about what you really are. 
Back in verse 18, it says they were afraid of Jesus because the crowds were blown away by his teaching. In verse 32, they were afraid of the crowds because the crowds thought that John was a prophet. So how did these men respond to Jesus? They tried to play the agnostic approach, the middle ground, third way approach. They remained undecided. Eh, I'm just not sure. We do not know. And then notice what Jesus does. This is super telling. He stops speaking to them. Jesus said, you resisted my authority. You've resisted my teaching. You've resisted my cleansing. I'm going to leave you to your unbelief. I'm going to leave you dead in your fake faith and sin. Friends, did you know that these men, they did not want to battle for the truth. It was always a battle for power. They could care less about what the Bible really taught. They wanted power. They wanted authority. They wanted political clout in Jerusalem. And Jesus reigned on their parade. Friends, to admit that John the Baptist came from heaven would, it, would have to be the place where these proud loud crooksters would have to give up everything they had worked so hard to keep. If Jesus really is Lord, then he would be authority over their life. Friends, do you know why people don't become Christians, humanly speaking? It's because they don't want to give their whole life to Jesus. Kids, when I was 12 years old, I remember sitting in sermons like you, and I woke up right before the sermon was going to end. Even at 12, there's hope for parents. But I remember for almost a whole year, I kind of white-knuckled the pew. My conscience was killing me every Sunday. And I look back, and when I became a Christian at 13, and now that I've had you know, 20-something years to think about it, you know the one reason why I didn't want to give my life totally to the Lord? I mean, honestly, as a 12-year-old boy, I would have answered this way. I don't want to go to hell, so I like Jesus for that. But I don't want to give up my whole life. That means I'm no longer in charge. That was the problem of the Jewish leaders. Friends, Jesus is the cornerstone of the temple, and Jesus is the head of the church. And he is Lord of our life. Friends, when you submit to Jesus' authority, that means he can speak into our marriage, kids, dating, sex, jobs, money, entertainment, time, church, politics, friends, hobbies, forgiveness. And friends, he even speaks to our hypocrisy. Friends, how can we avoid becoming full-blown hypocrites like these leaders? Let me give you five super fast points. Number one, Know God first for yourself before you help others know the Lord. Know God first for yourself before you help others know the Lord. Number two, learn to hate your own sin first before you hate the sin you see in others. Learn to hate your own sin first before you hate the sin you see in others. Number three, as much as it depends on you, Keep the number of your enemies on a short list. As much as it depends on you, Romans 12 speaks of. Keep the number of your enemies on a short list. Number four, allow God's infinite mercy to soften your heart to show mercy to others. Allow God's infinite mercy through Christ towards you to show mercy to others. And number five, Submit every square inch of your life to the authority of King Jesus. Submit every square inch of your life. Trust him. Believe in him. Friends, and that ought to speak to the type of church you want to join. Before anything else you want in a church, you want to know that this church believes Jesus is the head of this church. And what he says in his word goes. Let's conclude. The church is for hypocrites, but only a certain type of hypocrites. 
the church is only for hypocrites who know they're hypocrites. And they want Jesus to cleanse them of their hypocrisy. The church is not for hypocrites who want to stay in their hypocrisy and hide in it. Friends, here at CCBC, we should daily and weekly be praying that God would show us our hypocrisy and cleanse us so that we offer worship that's pleasing to him. I close with a very moving quote by evangelist Glenn Scrivener. Notice what he says. Ever since Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, Genesis 3-7, human beings have tried to hide their shame. It's almost involuntary. We are desperate to conceal our badness and to prove our goodness. Therefore, we cover up. Wearing masks springs from our fear, pride, guilt, control, love of status, love of power, and love of self. It's something we all struggle with. Therefore, the question is not whether or not we are hypocritical. The question is what will we do with our hypocrisy? The question is not whether or not we will mess up in life and harm others. The question is what will we do with our sin? What are you doing with your hypocrisy? Will you bring it to Jesus and let him cleanse you by his spirit and his word? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we praise you that though you love us, you do speak true and hard and piercing things to our hearts. Lord, we pray at CCBC that we would truly be a house of prayer for all people, that we would be a people who believe you in prayer. And that, Lord, if, if we have anything against anyone, or that we would not be even hypocritical in our prayer life, that we would do our best by your grace to reconcile relationships that can and to even forgive from the heart because of the mercy you have shown us in Christ. Lord, we pray here at CCBC that sinners would know they're welcome. But we pray we would never be a safe place for people to hide in their sin. Lord, heal us of our hypocrisy and keep our eyes on Jesus, we pray. It's in Christ's name, amen.